I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Welcome back, Procopton. Let's get into it. This is Seneca's 72nd letter to Lucilius, and it is entitled On Business as the Enemy of Philosophy. Before we start, a bit of clarification on the word business in this context. Business refers to business of the day, or new business versus old business, as in things we're doing or have to do. I have business downtown today, as a final example. This is not a commentary against commercial enterprise, as in, I have a business, it's called Stoicism, Inc. This would have probably become clear as you listen to the letter, but just in case, I thought it would be best to mention it at the outset. So here's Seneca's letter. Again, the 72nd, entitled, On Business as the Enemy of Philosophy. The subject concerning which you questioned me was once clear in my mind, and required no thought. So thoroughly had I mastered it. But I have not tested my memory of it for some time, and therefore it does not readily come back to me. I feel that I have suffered the fate of a book whose rolls have stuck together by disuse. My mind needs to be unrolled, and whatever has been stored away there ought to be examined from time to time, so that it may be ready for use when occasion demands. Let us therefore put this subject off for the present, for it demands much labor and much care. As soon as I can hope to stay for any length of time in the same place, I shall then take your question in hand. For there are certain subjects about which you can write even while traveling in a carriage, and there are also subjects which need a study chair and quiet and seclusion. Nevertheless, I ought to accomplish something even on days like these, days which are fully employed, and indeed from morning till night. For there is never a moment when fresh employments will not come along. We sow them, and for this reason several spring up from one. Then, too, we keep adjourning our own cases, saying, As soon as I am done with this, I shall settle down to hard work, or... If I ever settle this troublesome matter over here, I shall devote myself to study. 
but the study of philosophy is not to be postponed until you have leisure. Everything else is to be neglected in order that we may attend to philosophy for no amount of time is long enough for it, even though our lives be prolonged from boyhood to the uttermost bounds of time allotted to man. It makes little difference whether you leave philosophy out altogether or study it intermittently, for it does not stay as it was when you dropped it. But, because its continuity has been broken, it goes back to the position in which it was at the beginning, like things which fly apart when they are stretched taut. We must resist the affairs which occupy our time. They must not be untangled, but rather put out of the way. Indeed, there is no time that is unsuitable for helpful studies. And yet many a man fails to study amid the very circumstances which make study necessary. He says, something will happen to hinder me. No, not in the case of the man whose spirit, no matter what his business may be, is happy and alert. It is those who are still short of perfection whose happiness can be broken off. The joy of a wise man, on the other hand, is a woven fabric, rent by no chance happening and by no change of fortune. At all times and in all places he is at peace for his joy depends on nothing external and looks for no boon from man or fortune. His happiness is something within himself. It would depart from his soul if it entered in from the outside. Instead, it is born there. Sometimes an external happening reminds him of his mortality, but it is a light blow and merely grazes the surface of his skin. Some trouble, I repeat, may touch him like a breath of wind, but that supreme good of his is unshaken. This is what I mean. There are external disadvantages, like pimples and boils that break out upon a body which is normally strong and sound, but there is no deep-seated malady. The difference, I say, between a man of perfect wisdom and another who is progressing in wisdom is the same as the difference between a healthy man and one who is convalescing from a severe and lingering illness, for whom health means only a lighter attack of his disease. If the latter does not take heed, there is an immediate relapse and a return to the same old trouble but the wise man cannot slip back or slip into any more illness at all. For health of body is a temporary matter which the physician cannot guarantee, even though he has restored it. Nay, he is often roused from his bed to visit the same patient who summoned him before. The mind, however, once healed, is healed for good and all. I shall tell you what I mean by health. If the mind is content with its own self, if it has confidence in itself, if it understands that all those things for which men pray, all the benefits which are bestowed and sought for, are of no importance in relation to a life of happiness. Under such conditions it is sound, for anything that can be added to is imperfect. Anything that can suffer loss is not lasting. But let the man whose happiness is to be lasting rejoice in what is truly his own. Now all that which the crowd gapes after ebbs and flows. Fortune gives us nothing which we can really own. 
But even these gifts of fortune please us when reason has tempered and blended them to our taste. For it is reason which makes acceptable to us even external goods that are disagreeable to use if we absorb them too greedily. Attalus used to employ the following simile. Did you ever see a dog snapping with wide-open jaws at bits of bread or meat which his master had tossed to him? Whatever he catches, he straightway swallows whole, and always opens his jaws in the hope of something more. So it is with ourselves. We stand expectant, and whatever fortune has thrown to us, we forthwith bolt, without any real pleasure and then stand alert and frantic for something else to snatch. But it is not so with the wise man. He is satisfied. Even if something falls to him, he merely accepts it carelessly and lays it aside. The happiness that he enjoys is supremely great, is lasting, is his own. Assume that a man has good intentions and has made progress, but is still far from the heights. The result is a series of ups and downs. He is now raised to heaven, now brought down to earth. For those who lack experience and training, there is no limit to the downhill course. Such a one falls into the chaos of Epicurus, empty and boundless. There is still a third class of men, those who toy with wisdom. They have not yet indeed touched it, but yet are in sight of it and have it, so to speak, within striking distance. They are not dashed about, nor do they drift back either. They are not on dry land, but are already in port. Therefore, considering the great differences between those on the heights and those in the depths, and seeing that even those in the middle are pursued by an ebb and flow peculiar to their state and pursued also, By an enormous risk of returning to their degenerate ways, we should not give ourselves up to matters which occupy our time. They should be shut out. If they once again gain an entrance, they will bring in still others to take their places. Let us resist them in their early stages, for it is better that they shall never begin than that they shall be made to cease. I am honestly not the biggest fan of this letter. It could be that I'm just in a snippy mood when I read it and wrote this, but this letter is the second of recent letters where I feel Seneca is just so detached from a commoner's reality that he writes like kind of an arrogant ass without realizing he's doing it. For example, but the study of philosophy is not to be postponed until you have leisure. I mean, yes, Seneca, but you have a house full of slaves helping you manage any number of things you'd otherwise be doing yourself. Now, that doesn't mean Seneca isn't doing any work himself. It just means that there are certain drudgeries, the time-intensive sort, that he's not having to deal with, and that is probably lending to his ability to insist that philosophy not be postponed. I mean, for crying out loud, He just got done telling us not a few letters ago, in fact, the letter that comes right after this letter in sequence, that philosophers have a great debt to kings and emperors because they provide the leisure time through their protection necessary to those who would prefer to be philosophers and do philosophy. 
So he is in letters right next to each other saying, you can't wait for leisure. And then, but you need kings to make sure people aren't bugging you to do other things. So there's some inconsistency here on Seneca's part. And I think we need to notice it. That said, it is true that we shouldn't, if possible, delay our exploration of philosophy, which, to be clear, is merely the process of thinking about the world, our place in it, the sort of people we want to be, or sort of person we want to be, and how to go about becoming such a person. Those are all pretty important things to figure out about yourself. We shouldn't be putting these things on the back burner if we can avoid it. And we should actively seek to avoid it, because if we're not prepared for something psychologically damaging, for example, we will be more damaged by it when it comes to pass. So while we will have to backburner philosophy sometimes, because most of us aren't wealthy, well-to-do, tutors of a heinous dictator, and we have a lot of things that need doing, Seneca is just encouraging us to realize that those things that need doing, those things we have to do, are in direct competition time-wise with the time available to develop our philosophical minds and, in Stoicism, work towards virtue, because it's the same time taken out of the same unknown balance of time remaining in our lives. And that's worth considering. I would like to know what you think about this letter. What did you get out of it? How do you feel about Seneca's point, and do you agree? You can join our Discord to let me and other listeners know. You can join for free by going to stoicismpod.com forward slash discord. That is all I've got for you today, so until next time, take care.